Hello guys, welcome to the second episode brought by this new unapologetic uh, board, new members. This is Maddie again from the last episode and we're back a little bit late, fashionably late as I would like to say. I'm very happy to be back with you guys and we'll be having a very interesting topic that touches all of us and revolves around most of what we discuss in our daily lives. But first of all, I would like to introduce a new member of the speaking podcast sector, sort of, and she can do the introductions. So uh, I am Matilda, uh, so not Matilda, as Andrew stated in the first episode. I usually do the research and scripting for this podcast, um, but in this episode, I am your speaker and I am Portuguese. I was born in Portugal, but I've lived in the Netherlands almost my whole life. So I speak both Dutch and Portuguese. Uh, second year bachelor uh, sociology student. I'm very excited to be speaker today. And I hope you guys um, enjoy it and get some information out of it. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah, let's go. So listeners, the topic of today's uh, conversation will be about how language, in a way, allows us to understand something that happens in our daily lives from a micro to a macro scale and the importance of language usage in sociological terms, but also psychological and how they affect our interactions and are used by NGOs, by corporations, by individuals themselves, by politicians to sort of manipulate the way that we see the world which is a lot of what language does in a sense. And the topic is going to be conflict. So we're going to talk about the words war, conflict, uh, terror. We're going to talk about genocide. We're going to talk about ethnic cleansing. And we're going to do so through examples that have happened through history. Current examples such as the genocide happening in Palestine and makes sense in many historical contexts why is it that we use certain words and also the linguistic aspect of why we refer or some groups refer to themselves in a certain manner and how that contributes or not to pre-existing power dynamics that governments and news agency individuals and you know general agents themselves in society contribute so first of all we're going to talk about uh, a topic that is quite relevant firstly it was the on September 11th, when the U.S. declared the war on terror after the attack, uh, well, it was 9-11, there was a creation of a binary opposition where it was us versus them. Here, we can see as just an introductory example how a rhetoric was created that sort of increased tensions that were already existing by alienating another group, us, the U.S., and them, people that we don't know, people that are strangers, foreigners, and that we must dislike and have some contempt towards or even fear. And it was firmly established and channelized by electronic and print media that was very much accessible and expanded as time went by and as the war went by. So the mass media stereotypical representation of ethnic groups formed public perceptions of them. In this case, a lot of uh, Muslims or people from Arab countries. And these terms were also used interchangeably as if all people that are uh, Muslim or Arab or vice versa. Then uh, there's the Maruved experience that when we consume media, we sort of, th those that report it represent the world to us. So we are so disconnected from the events because we're not physically there that our reliance on those telling us these narratives simply becomes our way of understanding the world, especially when there's so little access to media back when 9-11 happened compared 
to now, where we had social media, where we have newspapers, both digital and printed. So the situation is intensified during conflicts and wars that are highly charged, where terms such as fundamentalism, terrorism, jihad, and evil were used to contribute to the molding of mass perception of the group that they were trying to oppose, which is the them in this case. So there was the instigation of what we call uh, waging information warfare that was started by governments, where there's a struggle between mediatic power to control the information output and what is correct or incorrect. And this happens even in times of peace to create fear, anger, confusion, and in general, stipulate what should be the emotions that people are feeling as we said those representing the news or outputting it those researching it writing it are the voicers of the situation and are reliable or sources in general and the fact that this happens in peacetime too can also be related to a citation of jacques if I pronounce it correctly, he states that in war, propaganda is an attempt to win victory with a minimum of physical expenses. Before the war, propaganda is a substitute for physical violence and during the war, it is a supplement to it. So it occurs both before and during conflicts, during wars, uh, propaganda always plays some kind of role and the language used during conflicts uh, softens the reality of war through the creation of words phrases even euphemisms and also images that influence people's perception of reality and they sanitize and also in the process desensitize human feelings towards for example mass killings and destruction so aspects of conflicts of war uh, and the part of desensitization refers to the fact that conflicts and wars uh, become normalized and softened in the media and by governments. It affects us less and less. And governments and military leaders do this by displacing reality with fiction, fact with symbolism, and truth with propaganda, uh, which is aided by mass media. And this happens to achieve their goals of the military leaders and the government. And Marianne will now uh, talk you through a few examples and results of this. One of the very interesting things that we encountered while doing this research is how a lot of the rhetoric that we see, even in movies, like the normalization of conflict and violence in the way we talk, is sometimes used in jokes or in conversations, day-to-day -day conversations. And we don't realize that there is a specific reasoning as to why these, these words are chosen. So our beautiful researchers made a list of how, of a few examples responding to what Mathilde just explained and their importance and relevance in our lives. So first of all is when media outlets talk about resulting in collateral damage. Here it talks about civilians getting killed or being injured. And because the reality might not be accurate enough to prevent this from happening or implementing policies or humanitarian aid, they simply talk about, you know, collateral damage, people died, whatever. When in reality, actors had agency, there was power, there was people at play that decided, okay, these lives are not worth saving, either being by directly targeting, by not caring if they died or not, by not sending aid. So it is a purposeful, violent act to disregard their life. A second example would be friendly fire, where soldiers are killed or injured by their own coalition troops. Again, another example of what we just talked about. 
The third one is shock and awe. This is done by scaring the wits out of Iraqi regime and people to effect a surrender to the Anglo-American forces. So here we have again this whole binary understanding of power. You have all the power, you have no power. So when we shock them and they're in awe, we see that American troops, you know, have the power to inflict this sentiment upon their opposers. So... You know, you scare them off and this is how you win the war because us Americans are the true soldiers and we have better technology and of course in some sense it is more advanced. But this rhetoric allows an understanding of your opponent as weak by default and you just shock them in awe versus no, you simply have more money, you are backed up by more countries, you have more power, you have more control, you have more allies, so it's easier for you to succeed in certain scenarios. The fourth, if I'm not mistaken, example is preemptive strike, where you attack a nation or group unilaterally based on assumptions of threat, so a threat may or may not exist, but you simply assume it and you act upon it. The fifth one, yeah, is just war, where you justify an attack based on set assumptions, which is a follow-up from the preemptive strike. So the just means there's justice, you know, it is fair. And the last example is war itself. When we talk about it in terms of like campaigns, expeditions, invasions, conflicts, occupations, when in reality it is just an umbrella term that sort of dissolves the more important terminology that refers to what is the difference between ethnic cleansing and genocide? What is the difference between an invasion and an occupation? What is the difference between, I don't know, a campaign and an expedition? When we use war as an umbrella term, we take away the agency of those that are fighting within it. And we also sort of diminish the power imbalance that exists between the parties that are involved. And also one small note on what Marianne just said, um, the part of other words that can describe war, uh, such as conflicts, occupations, militia actions. This can be applied on uh, modern day situations, such as the situation between Palestine and Israel, uh, but also between Ukraine and Russia, because both parties uh, might use different terms uh, that I just listed and Marianne just listed too to describe the same situation which already shows some difference in use of language and to influence people's perceptions of what is actually happening in these situations and also mass media plays a role in this uh, it is used uh, pretty much as both Marianne and I already stated earlier in the podcast uh, mass media is used to manipulate readers' perceptions in order to reflect certain policy positions, certain foreign policy positions. There are conflicting media and political positions that are reflected in the discursive patterns of news headlines. So different news um, stations formulate things differently which have a lot of impact on how their readers perceive what is stated in the articles. Different news agencies therefore create different realities of the same event through language use. Uh, for example, the difference between RT and CNN. RT is Russia Today, uh, which is a Russian international news television network which is financed and controlled by the Russian government, by the Russian state. And propaganda is quite central here. 
And an example is therefore between RT and CNN. They write about the same issue, but the language choices they made and underlying ideologies are different. There is the use of positive self-presentation and negative other presentation in order to support self's ideological positions and distort others' political stances, which is often the case for RT, um, because they reflect themselves as more positive and others as possibly more negative. So this can be related back to what Marianne said about the us versus them after the 9-11 attacks in the US. Something important to note is that although us as sociologists or other people that are listening to this podcast we we know that propaganda exists and you know people have different biases and they have a preference for using certain words it is important to note that even news channels that we thought you know they align with our values or they align with our political beliefs in certain times because of economic pressure because of lobbying because of so many other reasons political affiliations they can change their narrative. So we we take for granted that if we listen to Channel A, for example, they would always have, you know, a certain outlook on conflicts. You know, if they're liberal in U.S. terms, they will have certain viewpoints. If they're conservative, they'll like Trump, they'll like other advisors. And sometimes we need to understand that these positions can change. So it's not so much like, again, this binary way of thinking of, you know, there's, there's Fox News versus CNN, you know. There's many critiques to both of them, and they both exist regardless of political stances that an individual has, but rather seeing our news outlets just as nuanced as the people that deliver them. I'd I'd say that's the most important take, at least, that I personally have. Not taking for granted that just because you read this super cool article that you thought was quite innovative and sociologically deep or whatever from a from a specific news source makes it valid as a news source or is the only place where one should take their information from. Yeah, I completely agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think now we're going to talk a little bit more about the linguistic aspect and bring some examples of how, from a socio, well, psychosociological perspective, language influences the way we perceive certain situations. Not so much from a news perspective, but more so from a conversational one. So, yeah. So now we're going to talk about three articles as we think that academia is just as important as conversations that we have as individuals or with groups or communities that we build. The first one is called Understanding the Role of Language in Conflict and was brought by the American Behavioral Scientist. It presents several key arguments and findings related to the role of language in international conflicts. Its main example, or the key one that our dear researchers chose, was the first Oslo Accords. Now, what are the Oslo Accords? It was the first pair of agreements between Israel and Palestine, well, specifically the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, representing the stateless Palestinian people, which was its job, which was signed in Washington, D.C. in 1993, which is more than 30 years ago now. These communications often take uh, the form of negotiations, interviews, or diplomatic speeches, which collectively shape the public perception and framing of the conflict. See, here we chose the word conflict, or the writer did, hence denoting something regarding the situation. Justice themes are backlooking and focus on issues like ending violence or accounting for past wrongs without necessarily addressing underlying conflict issues. This is one of the key terms that this article brings about how justice is important for some groups versus other terms. 
In contrast, for example, the, the study found that the word peace themes are forward-looking, aiming to understand and resolve the root causes of the conflict and build a constructive future. I think, as always, we must take with a grain of salt all articles that we consume or even the sources that we, we give as a podcast and that will be cited at the end. So, yeah, just wanted to add that. As a follow-up to what you just said, um, there was also an analysis of Palestinian uh, and Israeli rhetoric in this article. Uh, the study analyzed 40 articles, 20 from Palestinian sources and 20 from Israeli sources uh, from the period of these Oslo One Accords. And it found a significant difference in the use of language between the two groups. So, as Marianne just said, there's a difference between justice themes and peace themes. And Palestinians usually use the more justice themes, the backward-looking rhetoric, the mistrust and power messages, while Israelis used more forward-looking statements and trust messages. Maybe this backward-looking rhetoric of Palestinians can be related to the fact that they have suffered a lot of inequality and oppression because of well, Israel, and they see uh, the situation as a, well, a need to obtain justice, to obtain... Reparations? Yeah, yeah, reparations, <laughs> yeah, uh, from, from all this. So they look uh, for, like, they look at the past, they look at all that they've been through, what they've been put through, um, so we believe or we see this as one possibility for this backward looking rhetoric and the difference between the view of Palestinians and the language use of Palestinians and Israelis. But it is interesting that the study sees that mistrust statements were correlated with progress in the talks for Israelis, while for Palestinians, backward looking statements were associated with a lack of progress. So their points of views and their use of language implicitly or explicitly influenced the way people saw their views on the Oslo One Accords. These findings uh, do provide a nuanced understanding of how language reflects and shapes the dynamics of international conflicts, uh, especially, as Marianne stated earlier, the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict during the Oslo One Accords and their points of view and their use of languages during this time. I wanted to talk about, just as a, as a brief and have a more conversational mm-hmm. aspect with, or- with Orly Jesus, that's our editor, <laughs> that's our sound editor, with, with Mathilde, to talk about how there's certain incentives for using this language. So language that is appealing to the public is not necessarily those used by the oppressed or those used by the oppressor. Generally, those that are oppressing have more mediatic power, more influence, more money, more support from other countries, hence they are allowed to get away with using simplistic terms. In this case, the example that Mathilde talked about that was found in the research, we must A, take it with a grain of of salt in in terms of the context. It's 30 years ago. It's very different from the conversation that we're having now, talking about the Palestinian genocide that is happening right now, but also because it was only taken from very few sources. So it is an understanding, and I, I guess a symbolic way of differentiating both groups and how they chose to use language. Like justice is good for those that want to restructure society, do institutional change, whether peace is simply a way of you know, restoring life as it was because those that were in power were very pleased with their situations. What do you mm-hmm. think? 
Yeah, I agree completely. Also, uh, Israel, for example, has a lot of support and yeah, aid from the US, for example, also in their points of view and how they handle certain situations uh, with Palestine. Um, so I do think that what Marianne, what you just stated is very much correct. And an example is exactly the US and, and the support that Israel has uh, from other countries compared to Palestine. So I think you make a really good point there. You know, the purpose of this podcast is to make it a conversation. So just as a disclaimer, which we'll talk about at the end, but we're all allowed to to disagree, to have different opinions. And the purpose of this podcast is to spark conversation and for all of us to understand, okay, maybe me and Mathilde sort of, you know, fucked up and maybe we have some things that are wrong and it is completely i think necessary for all of us to keep each other accountable for things that we say for future episodes or for corrections we can make on our instagram and also if we if you super agree with things that we're saying let us know you know it's we're here all to listen to each other what we are expressing is simply the viewpoints of discussions we as the podcast committee have had and you can disagree or agree with them and we'd love to have that feedback for future sessions and you can find the instagram in the description of each episode so you can just let us know what you think or what you would improve or yeah what you agree with yeah and if yeah. you have any topic suggestions or anything just link them below <laughs> don't forget to like and subscribe <laughs> so the second article that we're going to be talking about and we're going to make these two a little bit briefer so as to not drone on maybe you're taking a train from amsterdam to Maastricht or Groningen. I'm not a Dutch speaker here. How do you say it? No, yeah, Maastricht uh-huh. and Groningen. Groningen. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so maybe you're taking a train ride and maybe it is going to be three hours, but you don't want a full one to be this episode. So we'll keep it short and snappy. So the second article is talking about the language of conflict, also known as the relationship between linguistic vitality and conflict and intensity. And here we talk about certain terminologies. I think there's three that we're going to be talking about. The first one is objective and scope. How ethnic conflict intensity is influenced by linguistic uh, vitality or the social health of a language. Meaning how outdated or present certain terms are and how relevant they are to, to the discussion. So the second point is the role of linguistic factors in conflicts. The majority of ethnic conflicts involve linguistic differences between parties, and not simply of how they name the conflict, but how they name themselves. Conflicts can vary in demands and intensity, ranging from peaceful demands for language protection to violent movements for independence. Uh, that's why, for example, the word revolution has such a strong connotation in certain places where, in other words, it doesn't. The third concept is that of linguistic vitality, the usage of language in everyday life. There are three ways in which this can be broken down into. The first is the social status of the group, second is demographic realities, and third is institutional support and opportunities that these groups can have. So, the perceived threat to a language can motivate minority group members to engage in conflict with dominant groups to improve their social situation. Strong or very weak linguistic vitality tends to reduce the motivation for a said conflict. This was tested out or analyzed through the Minorities at Risk project to test, you know, the hypothesis. And maybe, I don't know if you agree, Marianne, that institutional support and opportunities that you mentioned now, maybe that can be related also what we talked earlier, uh, the fact that, for example, the case of Israel and Palestine, that Israel has a lot of more opportunities and more mm-hmm. um, support from other countries than Palestine 
probably ever had do you agree with that yeah no I, i i definitely think and it's what i liked about the episode and at least the research the more we talk about it in in this podcast and discussion we're having is how it can all be linked to each other so the examples done by our beautiful researcher Messiah at the very start were concrete examples that we can all relate to whereas andrews were more theoretical ones and they both link in a loop to each other so yeah mm-hmm. i agree yeah Speaking of examples that uh, Marianne just mentioned, also we also have a, a few examples on that. Uh, for example, the um, difference between the Catalan and Basque languages. The, this paper that Marianne just discussed, in, it discusses the situations also of Catalan and Basque languages in Spain. And the Catalan language, which has a strong social position and has been able to assimilate new migrants and avoid significant violence on the one hand, but on the other, the Basque language was too weak to serve as a social unifier. Uh, therefore, it has contributed to a more intense form of Basque nationalism, and usually this also results in a higher degree of conflict, or at least a higher probability of conflict because they tend to need to stand up for themselves more than Catalan-speaking uh, people. And now talking about the third article, which is the role of language in understanding conflict, specifically metaphors regarding conflict. So metaphors, you know, saying one thing is literally the other, whereas a simile would be using the word like. So like Matilda is like a flower, as beautiful as a flower. Instead of saying, (laughs) instead of saying like Matilde is a flower, just in case somebody forgot uh, metaphors or similes from primary school. What was interesting about this article, I think, was how how metaphors can be categorized regarding conflict in terms of understanding it. And this refers to, I think, the first article. Number one are geographical metaphors, which shape our understanding of locations relevant to a conflict and influence how we perceive people living in those areas. This process can shape our overall understanding of the conflict. For example, when you talk about people living in slums or they're in a war zone, this can either be a way to escalate or de-escalate a conflict. It can be a hyperbole or the opposite. So maybe people don't actually live in slums and it's a metaphor for they're not in the best living conditions to have more control over that zone, you know? Like, if people are living in slums, we can build this mega project or we can continue, I don't know, bombing because it wasn't even the best living conditions versus, no, it is just diminishing the livelihood, I guess, of people, where they work, the jobs that they create, the communities that they build. That's the first one. The second one are gay metaphors, which diminish the seriousness of war and related acts by implying an analogy between a war, conflict, and a game. This is when, I don't know, a news site says Israel versus Palestine. or This is a chess game where we might see which opponent strikes back. Or like, I don't know, it would be Hamas strikes back. It's not a game. It's not a retelling. And in a way, of course, it makes it more approachable to audiences when a situation or a conflict, a war, uh, a cleansing, an occupation is happening far away from them. But it also de-escalates our understanding or minimizes what is happening in that area. 
as we stated earlier, I believe it can be related back to the article that I believe you just you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, that some aspects of war and conflicts and these kinds of situations are shown to be more and more normal and people become less sensitive to these events. I think we can also relate that back to this game metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, and what is interesting about this is I come from Mexico, so a lot of the information that I receive is from the US and the way that they portray things. So you think about what was it called? The football match that just happened? The Super Bowl. Like people portraying wars as like Super Bowl what is the final cup between these very contested individuals? And it, again, creates this binary, which minimizes the complexities and nuances of a conflict. And, oh, so we have two other more metaphors. The first one, well, the third one in reality is medical metaphors, like the term operation, have become normalized in language of war, altering how military actions are perceived. So it's not so much an operation as it could be a mass killing. You know, a lot of what the U.S. did in Vietnam could be called operations when in fact that is not what they were or what they did in Afghanistan or in Iraq when they just destroyed half the cities and a lot of the Middle East is raging in in issues and conflict and wars because of what the U.S. instigated and they weren't operations. This can relate to simplifying metaphors and trivializes serious actions like violence against civilians, portraying them as minor or secondary to those that are fighting in combat. We might be able to see this also in the Israeli and Palestinian situation right now. And this article goes on to state the social script theory and metaphors. And this theory reveals that metaphors and distinct speech patterns in relation to conflict can normalize violence to make it seem appropriate or even expected in certain contexts. For example, well, this is not exactly a war, but in situations such as migration, towards the US, uh, mostly Mexican migration, where uh, news articles of the US, such as Fox News, tend to label these migrants as illegal aliens, for example, which I saw in an article which I had to read for my bachelor's. This can be related to this aspect that certain violences can be appropriate or expected in certain contexts. And I feel that this is an example that everyone might understand in this situation uh, relating to this part of our research. And in essence, this paper argues that metaphors play a very significant role in shaping public perception and the understanding of conflicts. And they often lead to biased perspectives and justifying actions that would otherwise be considered unacceptable. So it is used as a way to influence people's perception of certain conflict situations, wars, but also to excuse some of these actions and to label it as appropriate and expected in certain situations and contexts. And I do feel, I think Marianne agrees with me, I feel like we uh, stated the most important parts of our research. But we do want to note now in the end that as Marianne, as you already stated earlier, we have to be kind of nuanced and we cannot say, oh, 
our view is the correct view and that certain news articles, for example, are not necessarily right or wrong. But systemic change is important. But group conversations on micro level are also very important because how do you address these situations with peers and family and and people that you're just engaging with because there are conversations that might be uncomfortable for example the situation with russia and ukraine with palestine and israel but people who are in a position of privilege need to be vulnerable in this situation so for example if someone states that there is a conflict uh, happening or a war in uh, Gaza, for example, you might be able to say, oh, wait, that is not the right wording. This is not the right use of language. It is not that what is happening, but it's uh, genocide. So there is an importance uh, of nuances of being vulnerable in certain situations. So you need to be able to stand back and look at it as a third person. Now, I was just thinking as you were making that that reflection, which we discussed before actually starting to record, again, this talks about that, like everything that me and Matil talk about is not a command. It's mere reflection of what we do in our context and what we think is right for our interactions. But people are vulnerable in certain positions or in certain ways. People are privileged in certain positions in certain ways. And it is up to each individual to have their own agency on how to act in conflicts, in wars, in, I don't know, ethnic cleansing, in genocide, in occupations, in conflicts, the way that they deem most responsible, most careful, most necessary. And this is just us having our own personal beliefs as to what to do in these conversations. But sometimes it's dangerous even to have an opinion and that should be respected and yeah we as individuals are not questioning the autonomy of individuals or as you as listeners but rather sparking up what we personally would do Mm -hmm. yeah i completely agree with what you just said we have to look like at the mechanism behind the relationship between linguistic vitality or vitality (laughs) and uh, conflict intensity we have to take a step back and exactly look at how the whole process works what influences what uh, what wordings result in what so i hope you guys agree with it too and that you have seen that in our podcast which we hope we did Yeah, so just to wrap it up, I would like to say thank you to all that listened. If you listened on two times speed, if you listened to it really slowly, thank you for being supporters of SEC. You know, we're a sociological student association and we we would like to voice the opinions of our community, our own opinions. And if there's any interesting topics you would like us to discuss, to research, come talk to us personally or send us an message by instagram Mm -hmm. but we would like to thank our researchers which are andrew and mazaya this time Mm -hmm. and we would like to thank also orly which is our beautiful editor (laughs) so i guess it's a team where we all form part of and just because me and matil this time are speaking there's a lot of credit to be to be given around uh thank you marianne i agree we have a wonderful team who yeah makes us be who we are and like get our stuff done yeah (laughs) so we should say goodbye and well let's see what the new episode has in for us i might see you next episode (laughs) okay Bye -bye. bye